It's December. Whoa. Oh Isn't my that gosh. Crazy? Where is time going? I don't know. I feel like 2021 didn't even happen. 2020 was the longest year in, in history and 2021 didn't exist. I'm I feel uncomfortable. Right? It feels it feels weird. It feels off. It feels wrong. It feels like we just slipped into like a, a glitch and we've just time traveled. Something's space. happening. Something's happening with time. This isn't normal. We're getting but old. this is two girls, one ghost. Two girls, one ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hi. And I'm Sabrina. And I have a few things that I'm really excited about to talk to you about, Ooh, Corinne. Okay. okay. <laughs> First of all, I am I'm so late to the game, but there's a new podcast that I've been binge listening to. And I have not listened to podcasts in like years just because I've been at home and my podcast time was usually just when I was in my car commuting. But mm-hmm. the podcast is called Something Was Wrong. Okay. I'm subscribing to it right now because I too have not listened to it. Okay. Something Was Wrong. Yeah. And there's a bunch of seasons. I think there's like nine seasons. But I started – I just finished season one, which came out in 2019, very beginning of 2019. It is so good. It's like – but it's also really scary. Just It's about a woman who ends up in a emotionally abusive relationship and she almost married the guy. Oh, and it's a true story. Okay. And I think the whole show is about women who have overcome and come out of relationships like this. It is – I couldn't stop. Like, I've truly – I bring my phone, I bring my computer, wherever I can listen to it, into, like, the bathroom. I bring it while I'm cooking. I've listened to it nonstop. Okay. So is the the host the one – is she narrating her her own story? No, or is this she like interviews an audio? people. She does mention okay. her own story, but she um, the first season is about one woman uh, in the Sacramento area or California. It's she's somewhere in California, and then ninety seven episodes. This is totally bingeable. I know, I know. I was about to start season two today, and I was like, I actually have to be productive. I need to. I'll, <laughs> I'll wait until after we record, and then I will listen to some more. Well, with holidays and everything, there's so much time for me personally to be in the car traveling yeah. and whatnot, you know, wrapping gifts. This is a good this one. This is a great thing to listen to. Yes. Okay. Great and suggestion. The second thing I need to talk to you about. So as I was looking for emails to read at the end of this episode, which we are recording right now, mm-hmm. I stumbled upon an email that I don't know how we missed and I need to read it to you. Okay. And there is a video included in it. Oh, okay. Okay, so this is from our listener, Chris. And it's, oh, I guess it's a kind of recent. It's from October. But okay, so Chris says, your podcast gave me a ghost phone call and it's recorded. Hello, ladies. So this long story was emailed back in September of 2019. Okay, so we totally did miss it. Probably got pushed back because I gave a terrible subject line. So on one of the most recent episodes, I heard to submit an email regarding encounters that happened while listening to the podcast. Well, I lagged it and you already did the episode, so I'm sending it anyway. Feel free to add it to one of the episodes if you like to. Fingers crossed. My name is Chris. A little backstory about me. I've lived in my current home with my parents for approximately 22 years, and almost every family member and family friends have encountered something. One encounter has consisted of voices, voices mimicking family members, a lady in white, apparitions, doors opening on their own, along with many different encounters, but I will save those for another email. So back in September of 2019, I was driving on the 101 freeway back home from work while listening to episode 32, Do You Want to Play? While listening to the listener stories, the story of little boy Johnny had just ended, and you guys started on to the next email story. While listening to the next story, I received a phone call on my work cell phone, which is different from my personal phone that I was listening to the episode on. 
While looking at the phone number, I didn't recognize the number. And while looking at the number, I realized, whoa, that's a lot of numbers. So I paused the podcast on my personal phone and answered my work phone on speakerphone. After saying hello, I heard this child crying say something I couldn't understand. So I repeated again saying hello, and then I heard the child crying saying something like, Mommy. At this point, I say, You're what? After saying that, I believe I hear the crying child say, I need to go to Mommy, or I need to call Mommy. Not knowing what to do, I just said, I'm sorry you have the wrong number. And once I said that, the phone immediately hung up. After about 15 minutes or so, I looked at the area code, which read 527. So I did a quick Google search and found out it was why I'm like having trouble reading this because I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) So I did a quick Google search and found out it was from Iowa. After finding out it was from Iowa, I got worried and thought, what if that child needed help? So I called the number back. Once calling the number back, the phone rang once and a voice came up that stated that the number was incorrect. Figures because the number was 12 numbers long and normal numbers have 10 numbers. After hearing that, I suddenly thought about what I had just heard about little boy Johnny and I went back to the podcast and listened to the story again. At the end of the story, I hear Sabrina say, thanks for reading, Amanda from Iowa. Iowa. After hearing Iowa, my mind was blown away. After thinking this over for a few minutes, I remembered I have a dash cam that records audio. So once I got home, I immediately plugged it into the computer, pulled the video, and recorded everything. It's a little hard to hear, but you can make it out. I've attached the video so you can see and hear everything. The story begins at 35-second marker, and the phone call starts at about 6 minutes and 25 seconds. So I'm going to play the video. Okay. It's I'm like, oh, this is – okay. I already have chills. Right? And we haven't even heard it yet. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to pull it up. I'm just going to play it from the 622 when the, when the phone call comes in. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, so you can hear his phone ringing. My heart is both in my stomach and in my throat at the same time. I know. Isn't that? Like, I I feel so weird about it. Like, I, I want to go back and reread that story. But yeah, I mean, the fact that that story was like about little boy Johnny from Iowa, and all of a sudden, Chris gets a phone call from a number that's far too long, but it's a little boy crying saying he wants his mommy or something about his mommy. I need to call right. mommy. Seems like he's in some need of help and he re-listened up i don't know why i'm reacting like this but i feel like nauseous wait i kind of feel unsettled too it makes me like i don't think i don't think the reaction is that i'm scared it makes me really i I don't know concerned for this whoever made this totally but what if it is the ghost from the story who is like someone's finally calling or talking about me yeah no i totally believe it's it's Especially because the number he tried it back and it was a, not a number. Right. Ooh, ooh. Ooh. Okay. You know what this just made me think of is there was an episode of Touched by an Angel <laughs> <laughs> back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. There was an episode of Touched by an Angel where a little boy, I think, was in a coma and he was stuck. It, it, honestly, it's it's kind of like uh, insidious, but, okay. but it wasn't scary. Okay. But he was stuck in this coma and in his coma you could see him like the angel went and visited him in the in the space that he was stuck and he was like in this other dimension like in this other plane wandering around asking for help asking for his mom 
And it makes me wonder if this like 12 number digit is from some other dimension. Uh, like basically he entered and he's stuck somewhere. Yeah, it does make me wonder. I mean, I've said this story before on the podcast, but when my grandfather passed away, my grandma kept getting calls from this number every night after he passed away at like three in the morning. And when she like tried it back, it said this number cannot be completed as dialed. And she looked at the number and it was her phone number with the number seven in front of it. Mm. And she had previously picked up and there was like sound and it kind of sounded like warbled voices. Like, it, yeah. Oh, chills, chills, I know. Chills. I'm like simultaneously sweating and cold. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like – I don't know what to think. I mean, first of all, Chris's voice from that recording – he sounded so kind <laughs> and concerned when saying, like, I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. Yeah. But my goodness, what happened? Is there it can Chris intervene somehow? Like it, why I know. why him? Why that moment? And also interesting that like it chose whatever it is, it chose to call his work phone. So the podcast was still playing. Which almost makes me think that it wanted him to associate the two. Yeah, to make the connection. Yeah. Okay, we need to listen back to this episode because I, I don't really remember what the story is about little boy I, Johnny. Yeah. Should I go – should I look real quick? Let's see. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to read a sentence from it. A couple of days later, I'm heading out to work, turning my lights off, and at the door to go outside, I hear in a whisper, where are you going, mama? <gasps> oh, my gosh. I know. We need to email her and be like, did you lose little boy Johnny? Because I think he's trying to find you again. Oh, my God. I'm so freaked. Me too. I literally, oh, I can't even speak words. My whole body is freezing cold I, right like, now. I can't even get over I'm cold. I'm sweating. I feel like I need to get in a warm blanket and shower at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. We're having visceral reactions <laughs> to this. Oh, my God. I know. When I first read this, I, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, I read it and I was like, whole, I even texted you. I was like, oh, my God, I have something I have to share with you in the beginning of the next episode. And then I kind of – it went to the back of my mind. And now rereading it and re-experiencing it with you, I it's, like, even more intense. Yes. Yes. This is so creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, amazing but creepy at the same time. Yeah. And I'm concerned. I'm just like, what – what is going on with little boy Johnny? I know. And the voice just sounded on the other end. I'll have to listen to the recording myself too because, of course, I was hearing it like through a few speakers over Zoom and on your speaker. But, I mean, it did sound kind of like like it was fighting some distance, like <gasps> fighting some space. Wait, stop it. I just what? scrolled down to the bottom of this email and Amanda said, a few months later, we were packing because we were moving into a bigger house. And while packing, my boyfriend heard – why are you leaving me? Honestly, that broke my heart. I wanted to tell Johnny he could come with us, but I didn't know if I should. I felt bad leaving this little boy behind. We need Amanda to listen to this and to report back if the voice sounds like the voice that she had heard. <gasps> oh my gosh. Little boy Johnny. He's looking he's for looking Amanda. He's looking for you, Amanda. Oh my goodness. That is heartbreaking. Who lives in that house now? Maybe someone who scares him, and that's why he's so desperately searching for the I'm, woman who made him feel like he had this maternal like figure. Wow. Okay, oh what if God. we reunite Amanda and Johnny? Well, I feel like that would be a miracle. Do we get like a presidential medal? I think so. I think we get every <laughs> single award. We win an Emmy. We win a Grammy. We win the Nobel. We'll make a movie prize. about it, and we'll win an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> we'll write a movie about it and win an Oscar. Ooh, <laughs> this is totally a plot of a movie. Great inspiration. Thanks, Chris and Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> and Johnny. This is all Johnny. And Johnny. And Johnny, we hope you find Amanda again. I'm nervous to talk about Johnny because I don't want him to call me. Is that rude? 
Like, um, I want to help him, but I don't – I want to help him indirectly. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say this out loud because, like, I think I'd get scared if I actually got a phone call right now. But, Johnny, you can call me if you'd like. Oh. <laughs> There's something about phone calls when you don't know the spirit on the other side that's really unsettling. Like, if it's a loved one, I feel like it's so special and a wonderful, warm memory. Mm-hmm. But if it's just this kind of unknown presence, it's very spooky. Yeah, I mean, I don't communicate with the dead on phone calls often, if ever. <laughs> so I can't speak to personal experience. But yeah, I agree. It would be scary. I mean, I think it's one thing if it's a phone in a building and like that one phone always gets these phantom phone calls mm. and you can kind of participate or ignore as you as you please. But if it's just Chris and his work phone driving randomly through his his town in yeah. California or wherever he is, and he gets this phone call from a ghost in, where was it? Iowa? Iowa. I mean, how can you avoid that? I <laughs> you know. can't plan for that. Should I, in my future home, install like one of those old school chunky landlines with the curly cords? Yes. In my kitchen. You should do it in an old library. Ooh, I'll have, have a little I'll library. Have multiple. Every room it. gets its own landline. <laughs> Oh, oh, and that's even creepier because presumably when someone calls your phone, a landline, every phone you have hooked up would ring. But what if only one rang in one room? Ooh, even better. Very spooky. Yeah, we don't really have landlines anymore. That's one of the things that's kind of phasing out with cell phones. I know. We're not going to have as many spooky landline stories. So maybe this is our call to action for everyone. To everyone send us get your... a landline. <laughs> <laughs> or just send us any spooky phone calls. You've yeah. Gotten, whether yeah. on cell phones or landlines, because especially landlines, because in another 20 years, we may not get another email. We may never hear about them again. You also think about like all the old horror movies that like the phone rings inside the house mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the killer's like waiting outside or something. When a stranger calls. Scariest freaking movie ever. <laughs> Truly. I want a house made of windows until I start thinking about that movie. Oh, that movie truly made me never want a house of windows. Yep. The reflections in the darkness, not into it. Yes. Concrete walls for my house. Okay. So we said it would be a miracle if we ever connected Amanda and Chris and little Johnny all together. Yes. And miracles are the topic of this episode, picked out by our Patreon donor, Christy. So thank you, Christy. And this is kind of the beginning of holiday cheer on Two Girls, One Ghost, because miracles remind me of Miracle on 34th Street, which I was miraculously cast in when I was in third grade, even though I was a terrible actor, which I later found out in life. I was probably ensemble, like someone delivering mail. (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of crazy to me that I spent so much of my life trying and thinking I wanted to be an actress and now realizing how terrible I was at it. It happens. It happens. I mean, I was the same way. Led me to I where didn't I spend am as now. much of my life, but I think your energy was directed towards the right industry. That's true. I you was, just didn't know which which place you would fall. Part of my journey, and, right? And acting, I feel like, is such a kids grow up thinking movie making is being a director or an actor. You don't think yeah. about all of the other roles that go into it. True. So here we are. We are bringing you holiday cheer. We're going to talk about miracles. And I will start. I'm so curious about yours. It's 
I'm upset with myself because I almost changed what I picked for this topic Mm -hmm. because I saw that you had picked a few different stories and I was like, oh, there's just so many to talk about. Maybe I'll do like another combo kind of like Mm -hmm. what what you're going to do. But then I ended up writing like 10 pages on this and having to cut it down. There's really so much and it's it's powerful. Okay. So for this miracle, we are heading to Cokeville, Wyoming. In 1986, the town of Cokeville had a population of about 500 people. It was small, rural, and quaint, and really just a quiet place, a good place for children to grow up. They were protected. They were supported by the small community. And everyone here really knew each other. I mean, think of 500 people. That's that's some people's high school or college graduating class. Like, it's small. So everyone knew each other. Everyone trusted each other. It was a very family-oriented town. And out of the 500 residents, a little over 100 were elementary school students. So super family-oriented. I mean, half this town, maybe more than half this town, were kids. So the kids, they're in elementary school, living life. What a great day. It is May. It is spring. School's going to be out soon. June is approaching. It's getting warmer. Everyone's in good spirits. Until May 16th, 1986, when the children and their teachers were greeted by a woman named Doris. Doris was an ordinary-looking woman, unassuming, but her energy made many of the teachers feel uncomfortable. Doris went from classroom to classroom, instructing everyone to gather into room number four. Some classes were told that there was an assembly taking place, and other classes were told that there was a surprise waiting for everybody in the room. Wait, and this woman no one had ever met before? She just, like, wandered in? Yep, just wandered in. Yes. To the teachers, that's what they they had, what they were met with. And they were kind of reluctant, but it was almost like, group mentality like other they were seeing other class mm. classes make their way down the hallway so it's easy to be like oh maybe we missed something and like this right is, we're all exactly. doing it yeah yeah there's there's something happening so the teachers they lead their classrooms of young children into room number four meeting the other classes who'd already settled in and were awaiting their surprise oh no but what they did not know was that doris's surprise was a bomb oh <gasps> What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a this this gets really dark before it gets light. Okay, I was gonna say so much for Christmas cheer. Well, it's a miracle. Okay, say eventually was- <laughs> we get there. Okay, <laughs> it, it, you will get there. So Doris, she grew up in in Cokeville. She was from Cokeville, so she was kind of a familiar face, maybe around town previously, or, or some of these teachers may have grown up with her. 15 years prior to this day that she had entered the Cokeville Elementary School, she'd been working as a waiter and a singer at a local bar, and then she met David Young. David had a degree in criminal justice, and he worked for a short period of time as the Cokeville's town marshal before he was put on probation and dismissed. So he was having some issues. What did he do? I don't know exactly what he did. And I didn't look into it further because I already wrote so yeah. much information. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? Screw David. We don't need to, yeah. to know about He's his past. He's not a good guy. bad stuff in the future. Okay. So anyway, they fall in love. They get married. And David, he had two daughters. One of them he was estranged from. But the youngest daughter from his first marriage and him bonded with Doris. And the, the three of them, they moved to Tucson, Arizona. And it was here in Tucson that David began to spiral. And he'd always really struggled with his view of the world. And it was very evident in his writings. He thought a lot about existence, about spirituality and what comes after death. And he began to withdraw from society when living in Arizona. He only spoke to a few people. He Mm. became pretty reclusive. 
And then is when he came up with this plan that he called the biggie. Oh, no. Which was essentially a get-rich-quick scheme. And he convinced a couple other men, a couple other friends or acquaintances of his to invest in this, the biggie, the get-rich-quick scheme. And so no one really knew the details of David's plan. He wasn't really telling them the details. He was like, trust me, trust me. You don't need to know. But I have this all under control and this will work. He promised them money. And obviously the money was enticing. So these guys were like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. Yeah. So then David, he drives his wife, Doris, his youngest daughter, Princess, and the two men who had agreed to this unknown plan to Cokeville, to where he met Doris, to where Doris grew up. And that's when David finally told them his plan. He would enter the elementary school. He would hold each child hostage and he would demand $2 million for each kid. Then he would detonate the bomb and the money and the children would all be transported into the brave new world, which was a world where he would be God and where the children of Cokeville would have lives much better than the ones provided for them in town. He was their savior. He was their hope. Okay, clearly there's a lot going on here. A lot wrong going on here. But like severely mentally ill oh, at this severely. Point. But yes, there are also so many flaws with his plan. I mean, the $2 million is just going to poof into this yeah. new world. And also, like, this is a small <laughs> town. Like, who's going to give $2 million per child? No one has that. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there's just – he was grasping at what was familiar to him and creating this random ass plan that made absolutely oh, no sense. Oh, my gosh. He, like, wrote this whole manifesto. I, I mean, of course. It's, it's a story that's told in variations time and time again because this happens to people who – Whoa. To certain people. And I feel like a common theme of of people who write these manifestos and who who commit these atrocious crimes yeah. or attempt to often have that period of, of reclusivity mm-hmm. where they're just withdrawing from Spiral society. And that's in totally thoughts. what he did in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. And so who knows how much he, he brought Doris into it. But essentially, this is when everyone in the car, Doris, her stepdaughter, Princess, and the two men learn of, of the plan. No one had known before. They were just like, cool, we're going to go get rich. So David tells them. And the two men who'd previously been down to get rich, they were like, what the hell is wrong with you? Absolutely not. So David holds them at gunpoint, has his wife and daughter handcuff them, and leaves them in the van Oh, so that they can't go tell on him. My gosh. So then at 1 p.m., he and his family members, they head into the elementary school, the school filled with kids aged kindergarten through sixth grade, and they wheel in a grocery cart. And this grocery cart is carrying weapons like rifles and handguns, extra ammunition, and a gasoline bomb, a homemade bomb. And they wheeled it in and they set it up in room four. And as they were wheeling it in, one teacher, Janelle, she had spotted the white van park and she had just assumed, like, hey, it must be a delivery. They're parked in kind of the, the area that most delivery trucks go to. Mm-hmm. So she had noted it. Then she got up. She went to go check her mail at the front desk. And so she's in the front office to get her mail. And she crosses paths with Doris and David as they're coming in. She assumes that they're selling cleaning solutions from the contents of the cart and kind of the smell, the fumes. Because oh, no. she's, she's smelling gasoline. And she asks who they represented because she had heard that there were, you know, certain groups coming around trying to sell things. So she said, who are you representing? Mm-hmm. And David responds, ourselves, which is a very creepy response. Yes. And that is when Janelle, the front desk secretary, 
and the poor woman who had just entered the front office to hand in her job application for the school oh no were made privy to the bomb and they were moved into a room before being transported into room four David tells her to set up a barricade in the bathroom to ensure no one can escape through the second exit. So he's planning to keep all these people and if, when people need to use the restroom to make sure that they can't escape out the other door in the bathroom. So he had to have some knowledge of the building. Of the layout. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Or he just realized when he was right there. Right. At the bathroom. Right. Yeah. So he, he tells her that the kids are the most important ones and basically that she and, and the, all the other teachers and adults in the school need to comply if they don't want to die because he has absolutely no problem shooting any of the adults. The kids oh. are are the goal. The kids are who he's going to save and who he's going to get the money for. They don't matter, these adults. So Janelle's like, fuck. And she has to listen to everything he says, essentially. Yeah. And she remembers looking into his eyes, and she said that they were blank, that there was no life behind them. She said that he already looked like he was dead. Oh. So he's a scary, scary guy. And after setting up room four, his daughter, Princess, she panics. And she was already kind of a mess and, like, really was in she? She's an adult, but she's a young adult. Okay. So she's she's in this state of distress after learning the plan that her, her dad was taking them on and she absolutely panics she's like crying freaking out she knows what's happening is wrong and so she ends up sprinting to the van she grabs the keys from her parents and she takes off and she leaves her dad and her stepmom at the school and then she drives the other two men who had been handcuffed in the back of the van for not complying to go report the planned crime to the police oh my god so the police are are made aware of this oh but of course this is as with I mean, think about like Waco, Texas, and, yeah, and just so any many other hostage situation. It's not like you can just barge in yeah. and grab the person. You have no idea what's inside, what's set up, what and who's alive, how unstable he is. Like exactly. you don't know what will set him off. Wow. Yes. So because of this, Doris and David still had plenty of time to execute on their plan because there were police gathered outside, but no one really entering. Mm-hmm. So Doris, she attempted to collect the 154 people inside the school into room four where David waited, going classroom to classroom, like I said before, grabbing kids and teachers. And once inside, many of the kids thought that the assembly was on weapons and safety because they saw all of these weapons hung up on one of the walls. But others, including the teachers, began to realize that something was wrong. But they could not make a run for it, for David had a string detonator around his wrist and the bomb strapped to his side. So he was literally a walking bomb. David told the kids to gather around and the teachers and that they were about to be led by him into a revolution. And then he began to pass out copies of his philosophy, basically his manifesto, called Zero Equals Infinity, and asked everybody to read it. Well, so it does teachers, not. Zero does not. Zero equals zero. zero. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you are, a loser, David. Whoa. Well, so he's handing this, this out to, like, first – many of them are, like, in first grade, barely learning to read. And the teachers are recalling these kids. Some of them, you know, just learned how to read or they're practicing reading. And they're trying to struggle through this manifesto that he's forcing everybody to read. So the kids begin to cry. Many of the teachers begin to cry. Ugh. I'm sure some of them were crying already. Yeah. I would have been crying the second I stepped in that door. And the teachers, they attempt to calm the children down. They form prayer circles. They're playing games. They're telling stories. They're drawing, building with Legos. And the teachers put this eight by eight 
masking tape square in the middle of the room around David and the bomb and basically tells all the kids to stay out of the square to not get anywhere near David and where he'd set up and and his bomb. So David, he does allow for a couple things. Mm -hmm. He allows for a TV to be rolled in and for a movie to be played to pass the time. So some of the kids are watching TV. And then the fumes of the gasoline-filled bomb, well, they're leaking. And so the air becomes like really hot and pungent and everyone begins to feel sick. And so a few of the teachers are like, hey, can we open the windows? Because you know, we should let some fresh air in. This is making everyone ill. And so he's like, yeah, fine. Open the windows in the classroom. A few of the teachers led regular prayer circles throughout the time that they're being held captive. So remember, Doris and David, they come in around 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. and they're going to be held hostage for a few hours. So they've Jeez. got a lot of time there. So many of the children in the school and some of the teachers were Latter-day Saints. But plenty of the teachers and kids were not. Many of them had no religious affiliation at all. So some of the kids didn't know how to pray, but they were told that it was okay. They could just link hands. They could bow their head. They could listen. And one of the girls, Lori, she said that she wasn't really listening and she didn't know how to pray. She was young. She wasn't raised in a religious or spiritual household. But she sat in the circle and she said, even though she wasn't listening to the words or anything, she was scared out of her mind. She felt when she was in that circle, a warm blanket wrap around her and then sudden happiness come over her. Oh. And she said she was no longer scared. She just knew in that moment that they would be okay. So at this point, multiple hours have passed since David and Dora set up. It is now approaching 4 p.m. So people have been there for like three hours, held captive. David now has to pee. So he moves the homemade bomb to his wife's body, to Doris's body, and straps it around her waist and attaches the trigger to her wrist. So she waits in the room with the hostages until he gets back. Moments later, Doris stated that she had a headache and she jerked her wrist up towards her head to touch (gasps) her headache. And the movement triggered the bomb and it went off. Oh, wait. Is what's his name in the room with them? Nope. He had exited to go to the bathroom. He went to the bathroom. The bomb goes off. Kids and teachers are screaming. They're screaming for each other. They're calling each other's names, trying to identify who's where, grab people in their classrooms, trying to escape, looking for lost classmates amongst the chaos. It's absolute confusion. There's smoke. There's a bright light. It's chaos, obviously. Yeah. So Janelle, the teacher who had seen the white van and then had seen them in the front office and then was one of the very first people to be in the room and was essentially tasked with with manning the bathroom. When this happens with the smoke and the bright light, she's obviously confused. And she stumbles past the bathroom and to the exit. And there she sees the art teacher, John Miller, attempting to help people out of a window. And then he falls to her feet. And she thinks that he he tripped, but then she realized later that David had been right there and that David had actually shot this teacher in the back, thinking that he was escaping and helping others escape as well. She didn't realize because obviously there's so much trauma happening yeah. all at once, but this man is literally shot in front of crumbled her. to the floor at her feet. Oh my gosh. So David then re-entered the room where his wife was engulfed in flames. She was alive but burning and in excruciating pain. So he then shoots her and then he shoots himself. So police 
take down the barricades. It was said that it took all of like 45 seconds for everybody to get out of the building. Police take down the barricades. They begin running towards the people fleeing from the school. Everyone is covered in so much soot from the blast that many were not recognizable. And so many kids were burned. You know, there was like what happens when you're severely burned. Skin is kind of seemingly like floating off of people's bodies, sliding off of them. Teachers are on fire. People are like stop, drop, and rolling everywhere. And 79 children are taken to the hospital for burns and smoke inhalation. A horrible drive to the hospital because it's over an hour away. So they had to be in even more excruciating pain for an hour. Mm. The teacher who was shot at Janelle's feet, John Miller, he's taken to the hospital. He's treated for his gunshot wound. He lived. The only two people to die that day were David and Doris Young. So it would seem that this is just a terrifying and traumatic hostage event led by two deranged people who clearly did not know what they were doing. But... Here's where the miracle happens. Upon further investigation, it was clear that a miracle had taken place inside Cokeville Elementary School that day. The bomb tech on scene told the lead investigator, Hartley, that the physical evidence didn't make any sense that was inside of that room. The bomb should have taken out a good chunk of the school, leveling that wing and killing everyone in that area. But for some reason, the blast went upwards, like just straight up, and it didn't make any sense. It just like moved directly up from Doris's body into the ceiling. And then in the coming days, as the bomb was examined further, it was found that three of the five wires were perfectly cut through, which hindered the power of the blast. But this was a this was a bomb made by David himself. Like so why would they be cut through? Right. He wouldn't have destroyed half of it. It would foil his plan. But somehow, these wires were perfectly severed. Whoa. The explosive powder did not light the air on fire, except around Doris, because the gasoline had been leaking out for three hours while they sat there. So it made it less explosive. Classroom 4's walls were absolutely destroyed with shrapnel from the blast. Like, literally... Everywhere in the wall was damaged. And yet, miraculously, the like hundred some people that were sitting and standing in that room when the blast went off, nobody was hit by any of it. So, so odd. Yeah. So the lead investigator, he's like, okay, I'm going to chalk it up to luck. There's nothing else. I don't know what to make of this. So he's just happy to have his four kids at home safe because they were all in that school that day. All four of his kids went there. But then a couple weeks later, Hartley, the lead investigator, his six-year-old tells his psychologist that he saw angels that day. And the psychologist tells Hartley what his kid told the psychologist. So then he asks his son about it. He's like, hey, the psychologist told me that you saw angels that day. Do you want to tell me more about it? Can mm-hmm. you tell me what you saw? And his six-year-old son says, I don't know. She didn't tell me her name, but I think it was Grandma Meester. <gasps> Oh my and gosh. Hart- Hartley's like, I don't think it could have been Grandma Meester. She's still alive. But that's curious. So Hartley then gives a whole photo album to his son to look through. And when his son gets to a photo of Grandma Elliot, who died a few years earlier, he excitedly says, that's her. That's my angel. Oh, my gosh. And his son also tells him that everyone had angels in the room with them that day. And that just before the bomb went off, he saw the angels hold hands around the bomb and Doris, and then the explosion went up through the ceiling inside the circle that the angels had made. So they were protecting (gasps) everything outside of that upward blast. And this detail that Hartley's son said 
was a detail that wasn't known by anyone. This was physical evidence of the bomb that only the investigators knew. It wasn't common knowledge that the yeah. blast went, went directly up. upwards. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so his son should not have known this detail, but reported all these angels holding hands and the blast oh going up through the circle that the angels had created. I'm sweating and freezing at the same time again. I know. I have so <laughs> many chills. So then over the next few months, these angels continued to be identified one by one. One little girl, Katie, she was coloring in the room that day, in room number four, and she saw a woman in a long white dress in front of her. And the woman said, Katie, I love you very much. You need to listen to your brother and remember that I will always love you. And then this mysterious woman in white, she disappears. Then Katie's brother comes over to her and says that they need to go sit together by the window. So she was just told that she needs to listen to what her brother says. So she does it. She walks over with her brother, sits by the window, and then he goes and grabs their other sister and brings the other sister over. And then he's like, okay, I need to go tell my friends that we're all sitting over here. So he leaves the room. Once he leaves the room, the bomb goes off. And Katie told her parents about the lady in white. And she must have been sitting in a perfect section where she didn't get get any severe injuries. But Katie tells her parents about this lady in white that she sees. And they're not really sure what to make of it. So they're like, okay, whatever. Like, we're just glad glad you're alive. Yeah. Glad you're alive. Must have been one of your teachers or someone that worked in the school. Yeah. Nine months later, Katie's mom pulls out or, or she finds this like old locket of hers. And inside the locket is a picture of the lady in white that Katie saw that day. So she says that. She's like, oh my gosh, that's the woman. This was her grandma who had died when her mom was 15 years old. Oh my gosh. This woman had been passed for many, many, many years. Whoa. So then another little girl, a first grader named Jenny, she had been helped out of the classroom by a teacher. And this woman, this who she presumed to be a teacher, kept motioning for her to come forward. And even though Jenny was like trying to go retrieve a shoe and kind of was distracted and confused, obviously, the teacher kept motioning for her to come forward. She never said anything, but she just helped her until Jenny got safe, got to a safe space. And it wasn't until Jenny was 12. And remember, this was originally when she was in first grade. So she was like five years old yeah. at this time. So fast forward many years later, Jenny's now 12. And she finally learns who the teacher was because she was looking through a family photo album with her grandparents. And she pointed at the teacher who'd helped her. And then she asked her grandparent why this teacher quit after the bombing. And her grandma, confused, told her that she was looking at a picture of her aunt Ruth, who had died many years prior to the Cokeville incident, and she was not a teacher. Whoa, 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 whoa. And there are so many stories like this. Mysterious adults telling kids to go towards windows, helping them out of the building. But not all of the kids saw angels. So although Hartley's son said everybody had angels that day, not all the kids saw them, but many reported like they felt like they were being guided, like they almost were in this trance and knew exactly where to go, what to do after the explosion. One girl was very severely burned and the doctors were talking to her parents about skin grafts, plastic surgery options for her face. And she was basically just burned past recognition. Oh. And there she was she was going to have to get some sort of surgery to to get even close to where she was so prior sad. to this blast. And one of the priests, there were two priests going around the hospital doing blessings for all of these kids and the the injured people from this incident. And one of the priests, he stops into her room in the hospital to do a blessing. And he tells her that she will heal despite what the experts in the hospital were saying. Oh, my and God. then, miraculously, her <laughs> skin begins to heal at a very fast rate. She has absolutely no scars from the event. You can look at pictures of her and her family. She's got – she's married. She's got kids. 
now and she, there's you would never you know never know You'd never know oh, that she was my a burn victim yes and like just as like a reference i pulled a sheet pan out of the oven and i have a massive burn and it touched my skin for a second like i have a massive scar on my arm yeah and I that's had a like scar for a years from yeah. uh, like straining iron just, uh, it yeah. takes a second to, to takes leave a long permanent time. damage Right. Never heard to miraculously heal, and there's no scarring mm-hmm. or evidence nope. of it ever. I mean, that's yeah, whoa, and it healed so quickly too. Like it wasn't even just this thing that happened over time. Oh my mysteriously gosh, healing it was rapid, and the the doctors were like, we have no idea what's going on. So it's just miracle after miracle after miracle for everybody that was involved in this day. I mean. The only people who died were the people who were attacking the kids yeah. and the school. So the kids and the town, they begin to heal after this, physically, mentally, spiritually. And it takes a long time, but they, as a community, begin to heal. And then in 2015, so only a few years ago, a movie was made about this event called The Cokeville Miracle. And many of the extras in the film were played by actual survivors of the bombing oh and by their children. Whoa. And these survivors said that filming was just another thing that helped them heal from this experience. And that is the Coke film. I'm, I don't even know what to say. It is, that is miraculous. Like it's, there's no other word than miraculous. It's, it's yes, a miracle. Truly. It is like, I truly, if someone tried to pitch that in Hollywood, they'd be like, no, it's too, there's too much that like is, un- it's not real. Like we right. can never make that. It's not real. And the fact that it happened in real life. And I, I don't I don't have words. I am just in shock and I awe. know. And I really like the fact that kids, people were referring to these spirits as angels. It was like mm-hmm. I saw the angels. It was my guardian angel. And then all of these angels get identified as family members. Like yeah. this is, your family members can be your guardian angels, you know? Uh and like the fact that the kid the one kid was like everyone had an angel. Everyone, everyone even if people didn't see them. Every single one had an angel. And for that, you know, who was six years old to remember the woman so clearly and see and recognize her at 12 years old. I mean, you think of the stories you hear today of like kids who are four or five and they have ghostly experiences. They quickly forget about them. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a thing that the parents remember or like family members remember and they don't recall it. So right. for it to stick with them and be so – I mean, of course, it's a traumatic event. So I guess right, yeah. perhaps like that is harder to forget in life. That face is probably seen night after night, night yeah, after night wow. recalling the event. Yeah, I know. And just the, the angels holding hands in a circle mm-hmm. and the blast happening inside of them. The shrapnel not hitting anyone. Any of them. Any of them. And the fact that everybody got out in like 45 seconds – what one of the teachers had said was a few weeks prior, or maybe it was like a month prior, they'd actually done a drill for, I think it was like a fire or something. So all of the exits had just been practiced getting out of, which mm. really helped everybody get out of the school super quickly once the bomb did go off because it was kind of like instilled in everyone. And then like yeah. those kids said, they felt like they were being guided. guided. They just knew exactly what to do, where to go. And they were their feet were just taking them there. It is just devastating that children have to be put in or, – or anyone has to be put in a position mm-hmm. like that. Like, that's I know. horrific. And also the parents of those kids, they were saying that when the kids were coming out, I mean, they were – a skin was dripping off of oh some my of them. God, and they were completely babies. black with soot. People were collapsing to the ground. A lot of people thought that there were many fatalities. Like, yeah, it of looked course. like people if you were just that? dead on the ground. And I'm sure the sounds – like, an explosion it is not a quiet thing. No. 
The and smell. the screams, the smells, like everything. I can't even yeah. imagine enduring that in any right. fa- in any regard. A true miracle. Wow. There's like got to be – I wonder if anyone studied the ground there. Like is there just like – is the school built on courts? Like – I don't know. Wow. I mean even going to the hospital. Like think about how many people don't survive tragedies that – they yeah. get transported to the hospital and they they die from their injuries there or on the way there. This hospital was an hour away. Yeah. And, and they were everyone con- and clearly they were continued to be protected by these spirits because at the hospital the priest like recognized that this girl was going to heal regardless of what doctor said. <sighs> yes, I chills again. <laughs> I'm yeah, I no that's a good point though. Like what's happening in the ground there? Like what's happening yeah. in that area where it just was so easy for so many spirits to come together collectively and have this huge protection over wow. the school and the people. It's incredible. Got to look up ley lines. Maybe it's on one. It kind of reminds me of like the OA a bit. Oh my god, yes. If I ever become a billionaire, <laughs> I will have the OA continue cuz that was the worst decision. <laughs> Of any television producer to not continue that show <laughs> or to the woman who, who wrote it. I look forward to you becoming a billionaire. For the sole purpose of having the OA continue and to tear down City Hall in Boston because it is the most heinous building I've ever seen. And I truly react, physically react whenever <gasps> I go by. I hate it. Redesign. Redesign. Wow. And then then I'll solve like world hunger and stuff after that. Yeah. But first – Tear down the building. I hate it. I love because you're going to be living in Boston for the rest of your life and have to walk past that <laughs> building all the time. I'm doing it for everyone else. I don't want other people to have to walk past that. Okay. I just took a second to Google image the Cokeville miracle and the photos of the school classroom. And it. I just can't – I still can't get over it. It is – you can see the shrapnel everywhere, like tables overturned, like tons of glass and – yeah, the images of the kids yeah. kind of so and everything is yeah, it's horrifying. Wow. Okay. Well, I took a little bit, like you said, a different approach, and I gathered together multiple shorter stories that I will read to you. So, also this remind this episode really reminded me of the podcast or also the TV show I survived on Lifetime mm. Network. Mm-hmm. They have a podcast which I highly recommend if you haven't listened. It's so good, but it's just like stories of survival are miraculous in themselves, and then there's just like so many different types of miracles. There's like the religious ones. There's guardian angels there's just inspiring beautiful stories as horrifying as the experiences are it's just incredible to see people survive mm-hmm. so i'm going to start with a story of what seemed to be impossible survival it was around 10:30 p.m. on march 6 2015 the air outside was cold almost below freezing and the river water in spanish fork utah was below freezing Lynn Jennifer Grossbeck was a 25-year-old mother who had unfortunately been under the influence of drugs when she accidentally drove her car through the guardrail of a bridge and into the icy river with her 18-month-old daughter, Lily, in the back seat. In the fall, the car flipped and it was partially submerged in the water and the car was not found until the morning, 14 hours later. 14, keep in mind. Oh my God. In the in the water for 14 hours? So it was upside down, like, in, in the water, basically. Jeez. So a local fisherman the next morning stumbled upon it and called the police and first responders. And so they all arrived, and the first responders recall hearing a woman's voice very clearly calling out to them saying, help, help, help. There's a woman's voice, like, a, like an adult woman's voice. They heard it clear as day. 
But when they arrived to the car, they sadly found Lynn Jennifer, the 25-year-old, dead at the driver's seat. But miraculously, her daughter Lily was still alive. Somehow, Lily had survived not only the crash, but 14 hours in the freezing cold, hanging upside down with water levels like at her head. And she was not (gasps) dressed for cold weather. She was like in her normal clothing that you would just like wear in a car. She should have died after like an hour. Oh, without a doubt. Everyone was just like in shock. How They had no idea how she survived. And also, I mean, not not only did this miracle happen of this 18-month-old girl survive, but they also heard a woman's voice clear as day calling for help. But Lynn was deceased at the time. Oh she apparently God. had was determined to have died on impact. 14 hours before her baby. emergency teams call, were called to help. Yeah. So people believe that her spirit beckoned them to their location and had been protecting her daughter in the 14 Oh, hours. my God. Even though, I mean, this is a tragic story because clearly it was – she had drug problems and had put her daughter in that position in the first place. But, like, her daughter survived. Well, she finally got to, to protect her child in the way that I'm sure she wished she could Yeah, in exactly. real – in her living life. Yeah, The next story was declared a true miracle by the Vatican, which is like a very, very rare (laughs) thing. Big deal. Huge deal. And this story is actually really interesting because it reminds me of some stories we hear from listeners about aliens. So we can discuss in a second. But in 1998, Luke Berge was about to start preschool in Colorado Springs. He was a bright young child of just four years of age. And he seemed healthy and in a great mood. So he goes to his first day of preschool. And on that day, he suddenly falls ill with a severe gastrointestinal condition. He began experiencing intensely violent bouts of diarrhea to the point where he had to go to the bathroom eight to ten times a day. And if you know anything about bowel movements, that is extremely, extremely unhealthy and extremely painful and also dehydrates the heck out of you. Mm -hmm. So Luke's parents start taking him to see multiple doctors, and this is happening continuously. Every single day, he's having extreme bouts of diarrhea. His stomach is in terrible pain. He's crying. He can't keep any food down. Like, he's not – there's no sustenance he can keep down. It's awful. And no doctor can figure out what's happening to little Luke. He had to be taken out of school. He stopped growing and was in severe pain and was just simply wasting away and no one knew how to help him. They went through so many different types of possible cures and and ailments and it just nothing helped him. He just kept getting worse and kept becoming smaller and smaller. Doctors then suspected cancer, maybe a tumor in his colon. And like all the doctors that saw him were like, they had never seen anyone so sick. And they all were convinced that Luke was going to die. So at this point, Luke has been sick for six months, and he had been bed or toilet ridden the entire time. Six months. No one knows what's going on with him. It's just awful. And so they're about to go and do a kind of invasive procedure to find out if he had a tumor. And Luke's mother is this devout Christian, so she goes to the church that she attended, and she reaches out to the Bonzel Order, which is a a group of nuns. And these two nuns, Sister Margaret Mary Preister and Sister Evangeline Spenner, spent nine days praying to the German nun who their order was named after and had lived 100 years ago, Mother Teresa Bonzel. So these two nuns are praying to a deceased nun for nine days straight, every day praying, asking her to heal Luke. So they're praying and praying and praying to a long-deceased nun for aid. 
And Luke lay in this hospital bed about to undergo this procedure to investigate if he has cancer. Very close to death. He's so ill. And all of a sudden, after the ninth day of prayer, on the 10th day, Luke wakes up completely healed. His stomach no longer hurt. His vitals were fine. He was fine, happy, perfectly healthy. Just miraculously healed. There's no reason he, he didn't change anything. He had been in the hospital Nothing changed. He just woke up and was fine. After six months of this mysterious and seemingly deadly condition, he woke up just fine. No one, not even doctors, could understand or explain what had happened. They had never been able to diagnose what happened to Luke or what he experienced. They never were able to cure it. Even after the fact, they ran a bunch of tests to see if, like, something had happened. They couldn't find anything. He was alive and well, and he is alive and well all these years later. It was such a miracle that the Vatican basically went under a 14-year investigation. Because the Vatican, if you know anything, they are very – same with exorcisms. Like, they are very – careful to do a lot of research and look into the cases before they make any decisions just because they don't, you know, they want to explain away all the other options before they declare it a miracle or in need of an exorcism, whatever They try to debunk everything. Correct. So they spent 14 years investigating Luke's case. 14. They sort through medical records. They interviewed the doctors and the family and the nuns. And by the end of the 14 years, they were like, there is no logical explanation. And the Vatican ruled his experience a true miracle. It was so miraculous that they even opened up the door to make Mother Teresa Bonzel a saint, the nun who had died 100 years ago. She basically has to perform one more miracle from beyond the grave, and then she can be deemed a saint. Wow. And oh what, my God. I know. So the, the reason this reminds me of some of the alien stories we've heard, we've read multiple stories from listeners who have said like, when they were young, like four or five years old, four, five, six, whatever it is, they were so painfully ill for months and doctors couldn't figure out what was going on to them. And all of a sudden they healed. And there was one listener, we read a story very recently and now I'm blanking. I think it was maybe the last encounters where a medium said that she saw, or maybe it was the last episode. I don't know. Basically the medium saw a spaceship outside of her house when she was sick at like six years old. And the next day she woke up healed. Yeah. It, it leaves me with almost more questions. Like why, why are certain people, if this is, if this ends up being some sort of like alien intervention, why are some people healed? Is it just random out of the goodness of these aliens hearts? Are they know. subjects in a longitudinal study and they can't have this subject die? I don't know. I mean, it reminds me also of the listener story we read a couple episodes ago where the girl said her mom's an alien and the mom said abductions only happen when the person needs saving. What if everybody who gets saved by aliens are like star seeds? What if they basically are aliens, mm. fellow aliens? I don't know. You just and don't know. You're just wearing your human skin suit and living this life. And then it's, it's like. also scary to think that there are these illnesses and problems that the human body can endure that our civilization has yet to understand, which makes sense because if you think of evolution of medicine and, you know, tuberculosis and all the different diseases and viruses we've gone through, like it takes a while to understand what they are. So Mm -hmm. it is very likely that there are things that happen to the human body that we just don't understand yet or have the ability to detect, but like to just miraculously heal from it. Um, Yeah. I mean, obviously, that there's something going on. Like, whatever happened to him, it's a miracle. Yeah. And how it happened is unknown. But it makes me wonder, like, praying – it's an interesting move. I mean, I'm not – I'm not – 
very religious at all. So there could be a reason behind this that I'm just not yeah. privy to. But praying to a nun versus praying to a saint or like Jesus or God or whoever you believe in, I just didn't know that people did that. Yeah, I guess is, I don't, I don't I'm not knew? educated enough to speak on it. It was the nun who created their order. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe maybe it's like calling upon, you know, an an ancestor where you're like trying to to have a deceased relative help you out. You pray yeah, to them instead. But yeah, I'm just curious why it happened and and did she receive the message? Did she help or was it aliens or was it some other yeah. spirit? Was it a relative of the boy? Like who who was it that actually right. received and intervened? And what's interesting is, you know, in your story, all these children had so many stories of seeing mm-hmm. like angels and they, you know, talked about it very openly after the miracle Whereas Luke in this story, I think, was really, really traumatized by the experience and didn't like to talk about it. And I think also probably given the attention he was given by the church, it probably scared him away from talking about it right? a little bit. So, I mean, maybe he did see someone at his bedside that night before he woke up and was totally fine. Or did he experience something or, you know, hear a voice or who knows? It's just it doesn't sound like he has talked about it right yeah i'm glad he survived and that he's okay i know because that's no one should be in that much pain it's just okay the last story i have is it's a little less on the nose miracle it is more of an i survive story but i was i recently heard this story and i when it came to us doing miracle a miracle episode i was like oh my god i have to learn more about the story for myself and also Mm -hmm. what a perfect opportunity to tell it And it is about one of my personal favorite Peloton instructors, and I'm sure she is also many other Peloton users' favorite instructor, Robin Arzon. And if you don't use Peloton, which I feel like I should clarify, do not have a Peloton, but Nick and I use the app for like the strength workouts. But Robin is one of the most energetic, positive attitude instructors. Like truly you take her class and you're like, oh, I just like want to be her friend. (laughs) Not only has Robin survived from some truly horrific and psychological painful situations, she, as a person, is pretty miraculous, and when you hear her accomplishments, you're going to be like, um, wait, what? She did what? She is superhuman, because she might be. She might be an alien, for all I know, because she has run, like, ultra marathons and 100-miler oh marathons, and it's absurd. Yeah. Okay, so today we know Robin as the badass Peloton instructor we all want to be friends with, but a traumatizing brush with death is actually what inspired her to change her outlook on life. Back in 2002, Robin was a junior at NYU, and she decided to go out to a bar with some friends in the East Village. That same night, a man named Stephen Johnson armed himself with three pistols, a samurai sword, and kerosene, and took to the streets with malice, intent on killing as many people as he could, and then to die himself. Johnson approached a pedestrian on the street and put a gun to his head, demanding the man's wallet. The man, Mr. Brander, gave Johnson his wallet, and then Johnson shot the man in the torso. This man, Mr. Brander, tried to flee and runs into a small wine bar nearby, which happened to be the same wine bar that Robin had met her friends with that very night. Stephen Johnson watches Mr. Brander run away, and he grabs a woman passing on the street and shoots her. She luckily survived, but Johnson was not finished. He then ran after Mr. Brander, who he had just previously shot and had run into the wine bar. And so there was Robin and her friends 
when a gunshot victim came charging bloody and terrified into the bar. Obviously, as you can imagine, everyone in the bar became immediately concerned and things only got worse when Johnson himself ran into the bar after the man holding his three guns, the samurai sword and a container of kerosene. Johnson shot Brander one more time and left him bleeding out in the doorway entrance of the bar. He then turned to the 40 patrons inside and ordered them to the back of the bar. He then sprayed them with kerosene and threatened to light them on fire. And as this was happening, Johnson was apparently ranting and raving about revenge and killing them all. And he also was quoted as calling the events fun. And he was reported to say, a real man chooses when he dies. So as police rushed towards the bar, they were careful not to spook Johnson, kind of similar to your situation. Like you just don't know. Hostage situations are very, very dangerous and Mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. So the police are, you know, stationed outside of the bar trying to make contact and negotiate the hostage's freedom. Johnson fired his gun multiple times when police arrived, luckily only hitting a man in the wrist. And the other gunshots were directed towards police vehicles. Johnson then grabbed Robin by her hair, and told her to tie everyone up with garbage bag ties. He then pulled her back, held her by the hair, holding her in front of him while he spoke with the police, practically using her as a shield. She was covered in kerosene, and Johnson held a gun to her head and a lighter in front of her, switching back and forth, threatening to light her on fire. She remembers trying to talk him down, but nothing was working. Fortunately for her, two young women, Annie Hubbard and Anne Margaret Gidley, who were also in the bar, decided to jump Johnson from behind and try to subdue him. So they jumped him, pulling him away from Robin, allowing her to get away from him. Johnson then starts to shoot his gun, and he hit one of the girls, Annie, who had been trying to subdue him, in the right shin. The three struggled violently, and while they weren't able to disarm Johnson completely, their actions allowed the police officers to burst in. The police were able to subdue Johnson and free Robin and the remaining hostages, and everyone involved, even those who had been shot, all survived. Every single one of them. Whoa. Even the man he had shot twice and, like, left bleeding out in the doorway. Yeah. Every single one of them survived. And and he was in close range to them, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. And though this was an episode of Miracles, I also want to make sure we call out the people in the story who are miracles themselves, from Robin trying to talk Johnson down, to the two women, Annie and Anne, who jumped Johnson, enabling police to arrest him, because they are the reason that everyone survived. But the story is powerful nonetheless, so powerful that it completely altered Robin's life. After the traumatic event, Robin tried to return to normalcy. She completed NYU and continued to pursue a career in law by attending Villanova Law School. But she started to exercise as a way to cope with the trauma she'd experienced. And then instead of driving to classes, she would run. She finished law school, went on to be a litigator, and... She kind of is living her life, but always has this feeling that something was wrong and something in the back of her head was telling her that she wasn't happy and that life is short. So she keeps running. And even when she wasn't running, she was thinking about when she would run next. She became a running coach, a spin instructor, and a personal trainer, all while working as a lawyer. And then she started to realize that she wanted to feel empowered and impassioned every day and exercise gave her that. She ran her first marathon in 2010, and then in 2013, her mom was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So Robin runs the length of a marathon every day for five days. So she ran five marathons in five days to raise money. That's 26.2 miles every day for five days. I can't even run like three miles. I know. And then- Jeez. You you have to be so strong 
mentally, mentally as yeah. well and have really great control of your breath and breathing to yeah. be able to do that because, oh, cramps galore. Okay, and then listen to this number. Robin has run more than 20 marathons. She has run three 50-mile ultra marathons and <sighs> one 100-miler. She also has type 1 diabetes and continues to run marathons and ultra marathons, which is like a medical anomaly. She eventually changed her careers, left her law degree and law career behind and embraced what empowered her, which was exercise. So she is now the vice president of fitness programming and the head instructor at Peloton. And according to Robin, she attributed her entire career to owning the path of most resistance. And she said, I know strength because I've known fear, deep fear. I have redefined myself over and over again. And my life goal is to be an epic superhero in my own story. And she has succeeded in not only being a superhero in her own story, but also in my life story because, I mean, she is incredible. Robin is the is the miracle. Yeah. Yes. She has overcome so much. She survived. And she now runs ultra marathons like a champ. My God. Oh, what a scary experience. It's just, I mean, this episode's supposed to be <laughs> like somewhat uplifting because it's like, look, miracle. How wonderful that this happened and on this intervention from the spiritual world helped these people. But in order for so many miracles to happen, there has to be something scary and rough and unpredictable. Right. And that's terrifying. 100%. But it is also inspiring to see these people who have overcome such traumatic, horrible experiences and survived them create a life for themselves and and overcome the odds and become something and make a name for themselves, which I just think is, it's horrible that they had to experience it. But as someone watching from the outside, it is inspiring to my own life to be like, mm. I can, I can accomplish things. Absolutely. Yes, you can do it. I can do a, I could do one of her workouts, but I don't know if I could do a hundred miler race. I'm, I want to take one of her classes now. Oh, she's amazing. I'm going to, I have the app. So oh, you should, should try it. Love her. Yeah, I'm just I'm just such a yogi that I like rarely mm. rarely get into the strong girl classes. Yeah. But wow. Well, we are going to talk about more miracles sent in by our listeners. All right, this is from Shiloh. I love that name. Me too. Hello, beautiful creatures. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've been listening to your podcast for a few years and I absolutely love you too. There have been so many episodes that I've listened to that give me full body chills because I can relate to the story or it's the first time I'm hearing a story that sounds like my own experience. I want to thank you for the work that you two do and the community you are creating. It's nice to know I'm not alone. So let's get to it. I've had many bizarre supernatural experiences in my 28 years. First, let me preference this by saying I was born in Texas, but spent most of my childhood in Sedona, Arizona, and then in a small town near the Painted Desert. A lot of strong ley lines there. I know. She said, I'm not sure if the energy vortexes in Sedona play a part in my abilities or if it's the sacred ground we lived on near the Painted Desert. Wow. I mean, just probably all of it. All of it. Yeah. Cool. When I was little, I saw a lot of shadow people and I often heard voices while falling asleep and waking up. I still experience it now as an adult. When I was little, it terrified me, and now I see them as my ancestors and my guides, and I thank them for the visits. Often, I'll hear a woman's voice whisper to me, wake up, what are you doing? Hello? A few times I've heard a man, but often isn't as clear as the woman. Although this one time I did hear an old door open, and it definitely wasn't a door in our newly built condominium, and the man clearly said, as if speaking to someone else, 
are you sure? And then the door closed. Oh. I've seen a shadow man figure standing at the foot of my bed a few times, and he's often looking at me or looking out of the window. He's too short to be my current husband, so I choose to see him as a guardian and not something sinister. (laughs) In fact, I've never, with all of my experiences, experienced anything too dark, and when I get the feeling of negative energy near me, I visualize growing my light. I typically view it as a tennis ball-sized growing ball of light energy at the center of my being, Mm. and I expand the light out like a protection bubble around me. It's kind of like you're wrapping yourself with the ribbon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or like on the green room episode that Anthony was on when he was talking about kind of like pushing his energy out, Mm. shoving it out. I focus on how the outside of my bubble is coated in a diamond shield and I mentally tell the negative energy, you are not welcome here. You need to leave. I will not allow you to bother me. I'm stronger than you. Leave. And it always works. What a bougie outer shield. I know. Diamonds. When I was between 5 and 11, we lived near the Painted Desert in Arizona, and I knew the land was sacred. As a child, I believed I could create my own dreams if I focused enough, and now I know what I was doing was practicing lucid dreaming. Now as an adult, lucid dreaming comes easy to me, and I often experience past life memories, vision dreams, astro project, etc. Oh my gosh. I've been different people in my dreams, lived on different planets, and even remember a Mars-like planet with a lizard dinosaurs and a blue water planet with rings around it, where every being on the planet was packing up and leaving. (gasps) I've flown on spaceships and even was a dog once in a dream. Oh, my god! They are gosh. truly wonderful experiences, and I've started painting my dreams since I can't keep up with a dream journal. I can tell you more about those dreams on another email if you're interested. Yes, please. Uh, duh. <laughs> yes, oh my please. God. Wow. I'm interested in hearing them. I'm interested in you writing a book, a movie. Yeah, I want to see your art. I want Everything. you to teach me how to do this. Yes, I know. Create a class. We'll buy it. We'll buy that course, Mm -hmm. learn how to do it. So back to the painted desert house. After a lucid dream, I would often wake up in sleep paralysis. I couldn't take my eyes off the large dark shadow figure in my room. And once I could break free, I would run to my parents' room, lay down on the floor near my mom's side of the bed, and pull her hand off the bed so I could hold it while I laid there. Almost every time it happened, I would try to avoid looking at the corner of my parents' room because inevitably I would look into that corner and there she was, an old woman in full Native American garb just looking at me. A few times she pointed at me, and I would be so scared. She looked so scary to my child's mind, and I would try to keep my eyes shut until the morning when the light would come in and she would fade away. I remember clearly one night I did the routine, and I was laying there in my parents' room, avoiding looking at the woman, when suddenly my dog Kay started barking from outside of the window. It startled my parents awake because it wasn't like Kay to bark at night, and she was doing that dog bark that sounds scary and threatening, and we all got up and we looked out the window. There on the ground outside of the window was a massive owl, and it just stood there. It kept turning its head to look at my dog Kay, and then it would turn its head to look back at us in the window. This is like aliens! I felt full body chills, and I turned to see if the old woman was still there. She wasn't. The owl stayed for what felt like forever until my dad finally went outside to scare it off. He was afraid of it sizing up Kay, who was a beagle, and might try to grab her. Looking back, I don't think that's why it was there. I think it was there for me. Maybe a guardian? A warning? Who knows? I also think that the old woman was actually there to comfort and protect me, and I believe I've met her again at the beginning of this year in a vision dream. But that's a a story for a whole different day. 
Another ability I wanted to mention, one that makes me think that I might be a white or green witch, is that I seem to have some healing abilities. Although I myself suffer from an autoimmune disease, endometriosis, and other health issues, those around me seem to heal from their illnesses, and I attract wounded animals, humans included, all the time. My first true healing experience was with my horse, Daniel. The moment I saw this big, beautiful horse, I knew that our souls were connected. I was eight years old when we met. He was another guardian to me, and I was able to telepathically communicate with him, often hearing his responses in my mind. One summer, my family and I left our horse in 180-plus acre horsey paradise while we traveled to visit family for two weeks. When we returned, we found Daniel bloody, one of his legs infected, and he couldn't walk or stand. He was so weak. He was a draft horse, so to see him this way was absolutely devastating. He was everyone's favorite, such a gentle giant, and we were able to get him home, and my parents had two different vets come out to look at him. Each vet told my parents to put him down, that there was nothing they could do. They had done x-rays on his leg, and they found his entire kneecap and most of his femur and tibia was now mush. Oh, my gosh. We later found out that a few days after we left, someone owning the land next to where the horses were put wild stallions out. And because we had female horses, they were drawn to our herd. Daniel, being the only male horse that we owned and a natural guardian that he was, protected his herd. We think that there must have been a kicking fight and one of Daniel's legs must have gotten stuck in a fence. There, helpless, they kicked his leg to mush. (gasps) Daniel more than likely laid there for up to 10 days. And then she put a a bawling, crying emoji. Oh, my gosh. I know. When my parents told me what the vets said, I scream cried. My heart was destroyed. I refused to accept it. After an entire day of tears and me clinging to him in the stables, my dad told me that if I solely took care of Daniel, cleaned his leg twice a day, every day, maybe, just maybe, we could keep him as a pet. The vets all discouraged us and told us to end his suffering and that he would never be rideable again and probably wouldn't ever be able to walk again. But I didn't care if we couldn't ride him again. He was my dearest friend, and I knew he wasn't ready to go. So my little eight-year-old self got up every day around five when my dad got up, and I scrubbed his wounds clean, and I put antibiotics on it, and I spoke with him, and I loved on him, and I would repeat it again in the evening. Slowly over time, he got stronger and better. His wounds began to heal, and he even started putting his weight on his bad leg again. Uh A Native American woman also started showing up on the property on the regular. I know she wasn't a spirit because my other family members remember her too, although they never spoke with her. Just waved at her when she left, and she normally showed up at sunrise and left before most of my family was awake. She would make him beautiful Native blankets and even put Velcro on it so that I could fasten the blankets to him. I remember her being out there with me and Daniel in the mornings, and she would talk to him and sometimes to me in her native language. I never understood what she was saying, but it didn't matter because she loved him and she was there to help. I do distinctly remember this one morning. She was there whispering in his ear and petting his face when she said, miracle. I stopped and I looked at her. This was the first time I heard her say anything in English. She pointed to him and she said it again, miracle. And then she took a few steps towards me. She put her hands around my face. She looked in my eyes and she whispered, miracle. I've asked my mom about this whole experience later in my adulthood, wanting to get all of the details and wondering if the Native American woman was even real or not. All my mom remembers is that she was there often bringing Daniel blankets and that one time she actually ran into my mom and spoke briefly to her, telling her that Daniel was a miracle horse. 
Well, about a year later, Daniel appeared perfectly healed. Whoa. He was back to his old self, and he was using the once-destroyed leg as if nothing ever happened. My parents were so shocked that they had one of the same vets who previously saw him do another round of x-rays on his leg. The vet did and was completely shocked. He told us he'd never seen anything like this. He said that Daniel's body grew cartilage where the bones once were and now seemed to have all the bones back and mobility back. He took many x-rays trying to determine if this was a fluke, but no, our boy was back. After that, I was Daniel's only writer. Being the smallest in my family, we felt that it was not right to put much more weight on him. And he was so happy to have me on adventures with him again. And he went on living 10 more years after this, which is also a miracle because large draft horses don't typically live well into their late 20s. Daniel was and will always be one of my soulmates. And I can't wait to be reunited with him on the other side one day. I have other healing stories and experiences, but this was by far the most miraculous. Okay, I'll end it there. I've been crying the entire time that I wrote Daniel's story because I miss him so incredibly much. Thank you for taking the time to read this. I hope it didn't disappoint. If you want more stories, I'm happy to send them. Thank you again. Love, Shiloh. Wow. I mean, there's just a lot to unpack there, but that's incredible. And Shiloh definitely has some amazing abilities. I mean, yes, from being able to like a- lucid dream and astral protect and dream of her past lives to healing and yeah, she literally visits other planets and lives yeah. other lives and then absolutely heals Daniel. Yeah, but it also sounds like Daniel was supposed to be there too, almost healing her back because yeah. for this other woman to come and basically identify Daniel and say he's the miracle horse and to bring him. Right. There was something about him, something about his spirit that obviously called to other people too. Mm-hmm. And they knew what was going to happen. And he was perfectly matched with Shiloh, who was this you know, miracle worker herself. Yeah. The fact that they could almost hear each other's thoughts is, I mean, it's Dr. Doolittle dreams. Right. It does make me wonder, though, if the woman, I don't know, I'm just thinking of the woman that like protected her growing up. Maybe, maybe Shiloh's past life, she was she was Native American, and that's why she's mm. got such a strong tie, yeah. a strong line with these these women who are protecting her and protecting the horses around her. And it's interesting. It is. It makes me want to, one, spend a lot more time with Shiloh and l- hear more stories, and two, <laughs> also investigate those areas in Arizona. I mean, they're just clearly – and people have done so much research on them, and I'm sure I'm not the first to say this, but like it's so powerful. Whatever's happening there, there's there's just – between aliens and like the supernatural, there's so much happening in it, in Arizona. Right. Arizona. Oh, I've never been, but I feel like if I go, I'm going to be sucked into a vortex. <laughs> Well, when Nick and I went, he, I mean, he's also, I think he is afraid of everything that's out there. He totally believes in them, but he just like really doesn't (laughs) put himself, like he doesn't listen to the podcast because he's scared of opening himself up. But when we went on a hike that was known for its vortex energy, he like felt some kind of way. Felt a pull, felt an opening. And we've gone into, you know, we just like walked by an open house once and walked into this house and he was like, I felt so lightheaded. And like, I feel like he's, I feel like he's sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's just good at reading energy. Yeah. Actually, one of my coworkers was just telling me that she was testing out a few different cars. She was driving, test driving a few new cars and and used cars, starting her search for a new car sometime. 
soon. And she got into one of the used cars and she said she just couldn't wait to get out. She just felt so sick and felt like something really bad had happened. And it was just like this horrible energy about it. Whoa, that's scary. So yeah, some people just pick, I mean, you just pick up on whatever energy is around. Yeah. Wow. Poor Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is from our listener, Kayla, and she sent quite a few stories, but I'm just going to read one and we'll find another time to read her other stories. It's called How I Saved Someone's Life. Okay. This story is a bit long, but I promise it's worth the read. So here I go. I debated writing you about this for a long time, but a while back I was listening to an Encounters episode where a parent and their daughter were tragically stranded in a vacant part of a big lake at night while fishing when they were miraculously saved by a couple of fishermen who, after a series of events, just happened to be in the same part of the lake as the stranded family. This encounter seemed eerily similar to an event that took place in June of 2019. Last summer, I traveled to Costa Rica with a new company I started working for. I am a speech and language pathologist, more commonly known as a speech therapist or SLP, and I work mainly with the Spanish-speaking population here in Los Angeles. Hey, Sabrina. My company sent a group of therapists to Costa Rica for three weeks, where we volunteered with native SLPs at schools for children with special needs in the morning and took Spanish classes in the afternoon. On the weekends, we were able to travel the country as we pleased. So our first available weekend, myself and the rest of the group traveled a few hours south to a small but popular beach town. The first morning there, we wanted to go to the national park in town that allowed you to walk through the jungle with monkeys and sloths, etc. For some reason, that day, last minute, myself and a small group of us decided to go to the beach instead. We made our way to the beach where we were offered by the locals to go parasailing, tubing, snorkeling, jet skiing, etc. I absolutely love the water and will take any chance I get to partake in water activities. Okay, before I go on to set the scene, my group and I set up our blankets on towels on the far right side of the beach. There are a shop along the nearby road and a group of men with jet skis on the far left side of the beach, and then a few small islands about a mile off the shore. Anyway, shortly after getting to the beach, I asked the group if anybody was interested in jet skiing, and to my demise, everybody said, no thanks. After spending some time in the water and laying out on the beach, I asked the group again for anybody interested in jet skiing, and finally, somebody in my group agreed. I have to admit, I was surprised that the woman who agreed to join me decided to do so because one, this woman was older, definitely not old, old, but she has multiple grandchildren and it had been previously mentioned that she was older than the two leaders of our trip to Costa Rica who were maybe in their 40s. Not like age matters, but I was definitely just taken aback that she agreed as opposed to all the 20-year-olds in my group. Two, I hadn't spent much time with this woman, who I'll call M, because her and I were at two different volunteer sites, so we didn't see each other in the mornings, and her and I were in different Spanish classes in the afternoon, so the only time we interacted was in between classes and on lunch breaks and whatnot. Anyway, back to the story. M and I decided to walk over to the group of men in charge of the jet skis on the far side of the beach, and they informed us that it would be $60 a person for one hour, way more expensive than we thought, and therefore... I had to go back to my belongings and grab more money. We get back to the men to pay them. They take our money, and then they decide to tell us to come back in an hour because all the jet skis were occupied. We were annoyed and like 99% sure we were about to get scammed, but we agreed and walked back to our group to pass the time. About 10 minutes before we planned on returning to the men, my bikini top just randomly broke. Like I'm talking the plastic clasp in the back just randomly snapped in half out of nowhere while I was just laying in the sun. 
Frustrated, I throw on a top and walk to a nearby shop to buy a new bikini. After about 20 minutes or so of trying on tops and bargaining with a literal eight-year-old who was running the shop, I finally get back to my group and was ready to get going on the water. About 30 minutes later than our scheduled time, M and I walk over to the men, get to our jet ski that we shared, and headed out on the water. We were allowed one hour with the jet ski, and they told us we could take it wherever we wanted. We had about 15 minutes left on our jet ski when M offered to switch places on the ski with another woman in the group who decided last minute she wanted to give it a try. We start heading towards the shore when a woman on another jet ski starts driving directly toward us, like going full speed headed straight toward us. At the last minute, she veered to her right, barely missing us, and yelled something in Spanish while crying and then rode off before we could respond. I, who speak Spanish quite well, didn't understand a single word, she said because I was so confused and concerned that she was going to crash into us. I turned around to M and said that was so weird when M said, I think she just said she lost her niece in the water. I was baffled. Keep in mind, M was in beginner Spanish class, you know, learning to say things like, hi, how are you? And my name is M, etc. And she just happened to hear and comprehend this woman. So we decided to chase this woman down and finally caught up to her to ask what had happened. And she explained that her and her teenage niece, Penny, rented a jet ski and were out on the water when a giant wave knocked them off the ski. The ski had an emergency brake system that connects to the driver, so if they fall off, the ski will immediately stop. However, theirs must have been broken because when they fell into the water, the jet ski took off without them, stranding them in the ocean. The aunt continued to tell us that neither the aunt or the niece knew how to swim, and they both had life jackets on, and the aunt decided to doggy paddle to the jet ski. However, Penny was unable to do this, so the aunt said she would come back for her. We asked the aunt if she got help, and she told us she had just now got back on the jet ski and saw us and came our way. She knew that it took her a long time to get to the jet ski, but she had no idea how long they had been out there. We told her we would go look while she got help. And this is where it gets weird. I'm not sure what happened inside of me, but I had a natural instinct to go in the direction of one of the many islands off in the distance. I'd say about a mile off from shore. I guess I thought if I was stranded in water, I would try to get to land. So I took off in that direction. And I'm not kidding you when I say within a matter of two to three minutes of driving full speed in a random direction, I freaking find this girl in the middle of the ocean. I see her bobbing in and out of waves, waving her arms, unable to scream or yell. We ride up to her and she's just uncontrollably sobbing. We tried to get her on the jet ski, but she was so weak from fighting for her life in the waves. We tell her just to hold on to the jet ski and catch her breath and hopefully somebody will come soon. A short while later, a rescue boat and the aunt come riding up and they take Penny off, whom I would never see again. Before they took off, the aunt asked us to find the rest of Penny's family and let them know what happened. We get to shore and immediately find the family and Penny's mom and dad take off running to find their daughter. Em and I continue talking with the rest of the family who inform us that Penny and the aunt had rented the jet ski for one hour. However, they had been on the water for nearly three hours. When the family asked the men at the jet ski rental where their family members were, the men lied and said, we allowed them to keep the jet ski for a little longer. Meanwhile, I believe they sent out a few men on jet skis to look for Penny and the aunt, but obviously they did not find them until Em and I found Penny in the water. I'm not sure if this was divine intervention or what to call this, but had we not been told to wait an hour, or had my top not broken, or had my group decided to go to the national park, Em and I would not have been out in the water, and I have no idea where Penny would be today. As I mentioned, once they took Penny off on a boat, we never saw her again. However, her parents did find us later that day on the beach. The mom sobbed in my arms, thanking me for finding her daughter, and her dad shook my hand with tears in his eyes. They said Penny was going to be okay, but she was very shaken up. She had been floating in the water, fighting for her life for almost two and a half hours. 
I don't know if I had somebody looking over me that day or if Penny did, but whatever it was, I am beyond thankful that Penny is safe and I think about her from time to time. And if you're listening, Penny, I hope you're well. Thanks for hanging in there and listening to this whole story. I've been wanting to share it for a long time and I'm glad I finally did. Keep up the amazing podcast, hug your loved ones tight, stay spooky, and I'll see you on the other side. Best, Kayla. Wow. I mean, I am so glad that they were able to help. I mean, just the fact that her friend understood the Spanish yeah. is just, I mean, it's. it reminds me of one of those, I mean, I, I understand that she was in like the elementary level Spanish classes, but it it reminds me of when people report understanding languages they've never spoken before. Like they'll be mm-hmm. out and someone will be speaking French and then they'll respond to them. In French right. or like in English. Which makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then everyone's confused and they're like, what? Didn't you just speak English? And they're like, no. She yeah. was meant to know yeah. exactly what was said so that they would what chase down said. that woman and yeah. help find Penny. And the fact that Kayla just instinctively went to that one direction and immediately found right. Penny. Incredible. After these guys who own the jet ski company, like, who, I mean, who knows how much work they put in, but like, presumably we're out there for over an hour looking and hadn't yeah. found her. Yeah. I mean, and even if they hadn't, like, think about it. If they hadn't gone out, if maybe they hadn't taken out jet skis and, and held them for an extra hour because they themselves were searching, Akela and her friend could have gone out and never crossed paths with that woman and just had a fun time on jet skis. And Lord knows what would have happened to Penny. Yeah. And also so scary for for that company to lie and be like, oh, yeah, we let them stay a little bit longer. Like, no, this I is know, an emergency. Really and this is, someone could be drowning. Like, you, every second counts. Yeah. Thank goodness Kayla and M went in locked. Yes. Seriously. And, like, followed up with this woman. Because clearly the woman who – the aunt of Penny was frantic and, like, just driving, kind of looking for mm-hmm. help, not really knowing what to do and kind of just screaming, you know? She didn't really – stop and say the sentence she like as she was driving past them said yeah something. sheer panic yeah man wow wow amazing if you guys have miracle stories wow. please send them in because this would yes. be such a great encounters to do too in the oh, future just miracles and saving right? yeah, yeah. All the good the good warm-hearted endings or have you survived anything yeah tell us Oh, it also reminds me, I think one of like the very first episodes, maybe encounters we did of the woman or the girl when she was young fell out. What was it? Out of the window. There were two. I think one fell out of the window and another one, a mirror fell on top of her and like neither of them should have survived. Yes. Yeah. I remember the the one that fell out of the window. She said. Was that the leprechaun? leprechaun uh, No, she said uh, the lady helped me or the the lady caught me or something. Oh my god. I mean there's just we've been doing this for years so there's probably a few different variations of of a similar story of children being saved. Yeah. Miracles, we love them. We Miracles. also love any paranormal story, alien story, I mean kind of anything. Just share it with us and we look forward to reading it. Send them to us at our email at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. You can catch us live on Spotify's Green Room app under the name Campfire Stories every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. So listen to us live. We do an hour of bringing people on the the metaphorical stage where you stage. unmute yourself and, and tell us your yes. stories or participate in the chat or just sit back, relax, and listen. So join us there. Enjoy it. You can also, as I know, if you want to buy merch for any of your loved ones for the holidays, I would recommend getting your order in 
by the end of this weekend just to be safe and do that ASAP. Yeah, there are a lot of delays. And so there's there's not much we can do on our end in terms of yeah. manufacturing. So that's a PSA to order all of your gifts everywhere that you're that you're shopping. Yes. Make sure they arrive. You can also follow us on, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook group, all the social media. And you can join our Patreon. And thank you so much to our editor, Aiden Manning at Fire Digital and the whole team over there. We are so, 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 so grateful for all the hard work you put in. And yeah, we're just very grateful. And we will see you on, on the, the other, other side. side. Very smooth.